Well, in our study of Philippians, uh, we last looked uh, three weeks ago at verses 12 through 16. In those verses, Paul uses himself and his experience as a way to summarize the Christian life. If we remember, uh, first Paul told us there that we're not there yet. He says, we haven't arrived at perfection. Perfection is our goal. We're to be striving to be perfect, knowing we're not going to make it in this life, but we strive nonetheless toward perfection. That's our goal, but we're not there yet. In other words, Paul has been telling us, and he openly admits, that he still struggles in the Christian life. He actually tells us that all Christians struggle in the Christian life to pursue perfection, to kill sin in their life. All Christians are redeemed, yes. All Christians are saved and forgiven of their sin, but we still struggle in our lives to live the life that God's called us to. We still have sin in our life. We still have struggles in our life. And God is not finished transforming us yet. So Paul says we're not there yet. But what was it Paul told us in light of that? Press on toward perfection. Press on toward the goal. We're not satisfied as believers with where we are in the Christian life. We want to be more like Jesus. So we press on toward perfection. And then there was a third thing that Paul pointed out to us in the Christian life there is we're striving for perfection and we're pressing on toward that goal is that we must rely upon God's grace while we're doing that. God hasn't saved us by grace and justified us by grace and then said, hey, It's up to you guys. You do it on your own. No, it's by God's grace that we press on toward perfection. After having used his own experience and his own illustration for us, if you'll remember in verses 4 through 14, Paul uses himself there and gives us an illustration. Now in chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul urges the Philippians to look at him and follow his example. To follow Him. So Paul emphasizes to the Philippians the importance here. This is what he's going to do. He's going to emphasize the importance of examples in the Christian life. Some are to be imitated. Some are to be followed. And others are to be avoided. And he also shows the Philippians where their focus is to be concerning their future. While they're living this life... Here's where your focus is to be concerning your future. So today I want to help you see the type of examples that you are to follow. The type of examples you are to seek out in your lives as Christians. And also, we'll do like Paul. I want to point out to you, here's the ones you are to avoid. Don't follow these people. And I also want to help you see today that you're to keep your eyes fixed on the future that awaits you as a believer. So, the main idea from this passage today will be this. Walking rightly with a view of Christ's return. Walking rightly with a view of Christ's return. And we'll outline it this way. There will be two points. Verses 17 through 19 is quite simple. The examples Christians are to follow and the examples Christians are to avoid. The examples Christians are to follow and the examples to avoid. And then in uh, chapter uh, 3 verse 20 through chapter 4 verse 1... We'll see Christians living as citizens of heaven. Christians living as citizens of heaven. So let's begin by looking at verses 17 through 19. And here we see the examples that we as Christians are to follow and the examples we are to avoid. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. First Paul tells us there in verse 17, he says, Follow godly examples. You notice he uses the word brothers there. That's a term of affection to express deep concern for the people of God. Then notice what he says there with these words, Join in imitating me. Paul simply asked the Philippian believers, Follow me. Imitate the way I live. Paul says, act like me, live like me, follow my example, do as I do, watch me, see how I live, and copy me. And in verse 17, notice he even says this, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What has Paul said? Watch me, do as I do, and he says, watch those who copy me and copy how they live. See, there's a little bit of discipleship. Not a little bit. There's a whole lot of discipleship going on here. Our lives are to impact other people to walk and live for Christ. Now, it's not because Paul or these others have reached perfection, is it? What has Paul told us? He says, I'm not there, but I'm striving for for perfection. But he says, follow me because I struggle the same way you do. I'm not perfect. I'm struggling in the Christian life. So therefore... Follow me. Imitate my life. I'm trying to fight this fight of faith that you're trying to fight. I'm no different from you. Paul has told us that he struggles to be perfect, to kill sin in his life. And he says it's a constant battle in his life to be perfect, but nonetheless he presses toward that goal. But follow me. Look at how I fight the Christian life. You see, if Paul had been perfect, he wouldn't have been the example to follow. He says, imitate me. What is it that Paul wants us to imitate about him? Well, let me refresh your memory here. Look back to verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings. Notice what he says, Becoming like Him in His death, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Do you see what all Paul told us there? Here's what I'm doing, but what does he tell us in verse 12? Not that I have already obtained this or already perfect. What does Paul say? Here's what I'm doing, but guess what? I've not made it there yet. But what does he say? But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm not perfect. I'm striving to obey God, to follow His Word, But I don't always do it. But what am I doing? I'm striving to be perfect. I'm living my life because Christ Jesus has laid hold of me and made His own. I'm living my life. I'm not perfect, but what am I doing? I'm striving for that. I've not reached it, but I continuously strive to live that life. Most of us in here, I think, uh, maybe will remember the basketball player Michael Jordan. How many of y'all remember Michael Jordan? If you're Carolina fans, you know Michael Jordan. And some of you are Duke fans and C-State fans could 
care less about right now about Michael Jordan. You remember Gatorade had an advertising campaign built around Michael Jordan. And you remember what they called it? Be like Mike. You know, the commercials would show Michael Jordan dunking a basketball in every way imaginable. It was unbelievable to watch those commercials and think, how in the world can a human being do that? Now, their whole purpose was one thing. You know what it was? It was trying to sell you Gatorade. And we knew that all the Gatorade in the world wasn't going to make us dunk the basketball like Michael Jordan, right? We knew that. We knew that. Be like Mike. Paul is sort of helping us to relate to this. He says, I'm not perfect. I'm struggling in the Christian life just like you are. I'm fighting to live the life. I'm not perfect, but I keep pressing toward that goal. Look at how I fight against sin and how I'm pursuing perfection. Follow my example, Paul says, as well as those who look at my life and imitate me. Do you see the examples that Paul says we are to follow? And I'm going to flesh this out and apply it to us here in a few moments. Notice in verse 17, Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That phrase, keep your eyes on, has the idea of having the lives of others in your sight to make living like them your goal. How many of you ever grew up as a little boy or a little girl and you looked at some adult and thought, man, I want, I want to be like them. Particularly little boys, they want to be like their daddy. Whatever daddy does, the little boy has a tendency to do the same thing. Does he not? Some of you got your dads in here smiling. Yeah, so what? I have to be careful what I do, right? In Paul's absence, the Philippians were to find others who walked like him and he says, follow their example. Now, what does that mean for you and I? You and I have to look around at other believers in this congregation and in other churches and take careful note of those who live their lives according to the pattern of life that Paul gave us in verses 7 through 14. Those verses I read you there, 7 through 14, Paul's telling us you find people who live this out and you follow their example. Paul says... You open your eyes and you look around. You look at the people that are acting like me and you act like them. Look at those who know they're not perfect, those who struggle with sin, but they press on nonetheless to be perfect. Now, if you're like me, you might be saying, isn't Paul a little arrogant? That's the first thought that comes to your mind. None of us sitting here would ever say, follow me, would you? We say, no, Christians are to be humble. We would never say things like, Follow me. Here's how I think Paul can make this statement. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, listen to what Paul says. He says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Uh-oh. It's not just to imitate Paul, but we imitate Paul insofar as he imitates Christ. For you and me, we should follow other Christians as they follow Jesus. To be honest, if someone is following Jesus, guess what? They're not going to have to say, what? Follow me. You're going to be able to look at their life, and you're going to be able to see that. That's why it's so important for us to be involved in the local church. Now listen to me carefully. That is one of the reasons why church membership is so important to the people of God. Church membership is not just about having your name on the roll. It's about being part of God's design for sharing life together as believers. I was at the nursing home last night, and I think it was Johnny, we were 
having a conversation, and he mentioned something about what a blessing it was to have a church family, to have people to walk through life with. Man, the line, if you were there, the line was pretty long. They, they weaved that thing all the way through. The, I began to wonder, are we, are we, are we close? We kept weaving in and out of doors and up hallways. But I've been to the funeral home, and I told Johnny, where you walk in, sign the book, and there's three names on there, nobody in the building but the body. What a sad situation. That's how important church membership is. It's God's design to encourage and edify one another toward perfection. Some of you know, before I came here as your pastor, I served as a, a pastor along with two other gentlemen at church in Wake Forest. And every Monday we got together and we had a, a, a pastor's meeting, an elder's meeting. And we'd meet and talk about anything that needed to be talked about. What needed to be done in the church, um, who needed counseling, and everything that went on. We prayed for people. We pulled the church roll out. We prayed down that list for people. But at the end of that meeting, every week, we pulled a sheet of paper out that had like 15 questions on it, and they were accountability questions. And every one of us went through those questions, read that question, and says, here's where I'm at. Here's how I'm obeying God. Here's how I'm not obeying God. Now, I was affectionately known as the elder elder because I was about 23 years older than the next closest guy. But I sat there every week as an older Christian, and I saw two younger guys tell me every week I'm struggling with sin. I don't treat my wife like I need to sometimes. I get mad at my children. Uh, it just, just all kinds of things. And you know what? They were looking at me. I, I older guy. Help me out. And I was sitting there going, well, I do the same thing you do. And I would watch those younger guys and I'd walk away every week going, I'm learning from them. I watched their example of how they repented of their sins and said, I'm struggling. I can't, I'm, I'm falling short, but I want to be perfect. Please help me get there. How do we make application to this? I think I've said this already. Look for those here in this congregation that follow Jesus and you follow their example. Here's the question I have for you. Do you look for, do you admire and imitate Christ's likeness so others can see that in your life? Do you look for those who live a Christ-centered, gospel-centered life and say, that's what I want to be. I want to follow their example. In so much as they follow Jesus, I want to be like them. Another question I have for you. Are you a Christian that others can keep their eyes on and catch a glimpse of Jesus? Can other Christians keep their eyes on you and see Jesus? Can others look at you and because of what they see... Want to know, trust, and love Jesus more. Do you have the life that Paul illustrated for us in verses 7 through 14? Do you live a Christ centered, gospel centered life? Can other people look at your life and say, Man, I want to be like him? Not because he's perfect, but because he knows he's not perfect, but he keeps striving toward perfection. I'm not, the next group of people I name off, I'm not picking you out. But deacons and older Christians sitting in this congregation, and I'll even say you younger Christians, it may be that there are others who are watching you and they will follow you. Will they be able to look at your life and see you pursuing perfection, seeking to live for Jesus? Falling short, but nevertheless having a hunger to 
pursue to be more like Christ. Dads and moms, can your children fix their eyes on you and see you failing to be perfect but still pressing toward the goal? Let me talk to you dads for a second. Don't be too prideful to admit to your children that you make mistakes and you sin. You know why? Because your children will look at you and go, my dad admits he's not perfect, but he still strives for perfection. And that will be a great example for your children to follow. Better yet, the question may be here this morning, should other people be following you? Are you the example to be followed? Do you pray for yourself that you would be the type of person that other Christians could follow? Or are you one of those who, if they followed you, they might stumble more in their own walk? Look at verse 18. Here Paul shows us the examples to avoid. For many of whom I have often told you, now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now it's hard to be certain exactly who these bad examples are. I think these people are probably not self-confessing unbelievers. In other words, they're not confessing that they're unbelievers to the point of making that known. I say that because it's unlikely that the Philippian Christians would be tempted to follow after people who didn't at least claim to be a Christian. Does that make sense? Alright? I think the meaning here in verse 18 are those who profess to be Christians, who walk or live in such a way that they're ungodly examples. They don't profess to be unbelievers, but their lives are bad examples of walking godly. I think these people make a profession of Christian faith and they draw others away by the way they live. They talk a good game. They parade themselves as Christians, but what's missing here is a focus on the cross. What does Paul call them? He says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. People who are enemies of the cross of Christ never take on the attitude that Paul gave us in verses 7-14. through That never happens with these people. These examples to avoid are people who claim to love God and yet they're so worldly that Paul characterizes them as what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. The cross, in other words, has no place in these people's lives. Notice how Paul describes them in verse 19. Their end is destruction. <coughs> Excuse me. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't look good on a Christian resume, right? My end is destruction, my God is my belly, I glory in my shame, and I set mine on earthly things. That doesn't look good on a Christian resume. Notice how Paul characterizes them. Their end is destruction. Regardless of what they may say, they're not real believers. Why? Because they're what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. All those who reject salvation through the cross of Jesus, Paul says they face eternal destruction. Next, Paul says a very interesting statement about them. He says, their God is their belly. Now you read that and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Do they worship their stomachs? No. Belly there is a metaphor which means self-indulgence or own comfort. They don't worship God, but they worship what? Selfish desires. It's all about me and my comfort in this world. Watch some preaching on TV and you'll know 
what I'm talking about. Notice what he says next. Their glory is their shame. They exalt themselves. They boast, as Paul said in chapter 3 verse 8, about their rubbish. Instead of counting all things as loss for the sake of Christ. Then notice what he says there about them last. Their minds are set on earthly things. I think this is the overarching thing for them. Their minds are set on earthly things. They value and they cherish this world. These people, Paul says, avoid them. Don't imitate their lives. Now, I know some of you may be saying at this point in time, and I have been well guilty of this myself, I don't have to worry about this part of the sermon. That doesn't describe me at all. Let me give you a little test, okay? Let's say you're sitting down next to an unbeliever. Maybe it's a neighbor, it's a co-worker, it's a family member, or maybe a long-time friend. And you're going to write on a sheet of paper what you care about most in this world. What habits you have, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you want more than anything in this world, what your goals are, what you want out of life. You're going to write those things on a piece of paper while you're sitting beside this unbeliever. Let me ask you one question. How would your sheet be different from your unbelieving friend's sheet? If you're a Christian, your sheet should be very much different from the unbeliever's sheet. Why do I say that? I say that because Christians ought to be different from people whose citizenship or whose minds are set on this world. Notice what Paul says next as we move to verse 20 through chapter 4, verse 1. Christians living as citizens of heaven. He says, but, that word means what? There's a contrast to be drawn here. But, our citizenship is in heaven. What was he just saying? They set their mind on what? This world. But you, living as citizens of heaven... Set your mind on this world. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus will do for us, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Paul says, our citizenship is where? In heaven. He's ending this comparison between those who set their mind on earthly things and who... True Christians are. Paul uses that word citizenship there. And when he uses that word, he's he's helping you to call to mind a place. When you and I think of citizenship, what do we think of? I'm a citizen of what? The United States. I'm a citizen of a place. And that's what Paul's doing here, using this word. He's calling their mind to a place. The Philippians were to imitate Paul in their walk because their true home was where? Heaven. And as such, they were to live as if they were aliens in this world. Does everyone know what an alien is? It means you're somewhere where you're not meant to be, right? Have you ever thought of life that way? You're somewhere now as a Christian that you're not meant to be. Your citizenship, the place you were to focus upon is heaven. Paul says they were to live in this world, longing and desiring their true home, heaven. How many of you in here have ever been away from home and had a deep longing to get back home? You guys that were in the military, raise your hand. I can't remember who you are. I see Tom back there, and I remember talking to Clyde Staley. When you guys were in the military, you had a desire and a longing to get back home, didn't you? 
You remember those days? I remember when I was in the Navy on the ship when it got down to my last seven or eight months. We went on a cruise and I put this big calendar in my bunk. And every night when I crawl in that bed, I'd take a marker. And you know what I'd do? I'd mark through that day. And they were numbered. And I could see how many days I had. Man, I had a longing and I had a desire to get home. They offered me $30,000 to re-enlist. You know what I told them? No way. I'm going home if I have to dig ditches. That's what I'll do. But I'm going home. I'm not staying here. I have a longing and a desire to get home. Paul says there's a deep longing here for home. And Paul's applying this to every Christian. He's saying, Christian, there ought to be a deep longing and a desire in you for home. And listen, I know this is bad English. This ain't your home. Alright? You ought to be homesick for heaven. Paul says that the genuine Christian can't, cannot have the position of these enemies of the cross of Christ. You can't be like these people and set your mind on this world. Paul is saying the genuine Christian, the kind that he wants imitated, they live their lives how? Looking for who? Jesus to come. It's the kind of Christian that says along with John in Revelation 22, verse 20, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Amen, come Lord Jesus. You ever know that's how the Word of God ends? How does it begin? In the beginning, God what? Created. In the end, it says, come Lord Jesus. And you you and I are living in between those two statements, but we're looking for that one at the end. Come Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Genuine Christians, you're living your life here preparing for heaven. Why? Because according to Paul, that's where your real home is. Notice the Lord there of the many in verse 18. We talked about this. Their God is their belly. They worship their own selfish desires. They have a lifestyle of self-indulgence, but believers do what? They look out from themselves and they look upward to the return of Christ. Notice verse 20. It says, We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we doing? How are we living in this world? What are we doing? Waiting for Jesus. Now here's what I want. I want you to wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm waiting for Jesus. I'm looking for Jesus to come. I know some of you are like me. I was a believer and I wanted Jesus to come, but guess what? I didn't want Him to come right now because I had things I wanted to do. Right? That's not the way it's supposed to be. Let me give you, and I, I try not to do this, but I need to give you a little Greek lesson here, okay? The word await there in the Greek is made up of three words. They take three words and put it together and make that one word. And those three words are receive, off, and out. They put them all together and make this one word. The word receive speaks of welcoming, as welcoming of a guest. It also has the idea of preparing for that guest. How many of you ever done that? You're looking for a guest and you're preparing, getting ready for them to come. Then there's the word off, speaks of withdrawing one's attention from other objects. Then there's the word out, which has the idea of waiting to the point of stretching out your neck and looking for that person. How many of you ever done that? Some of you girls in here in your teenage years, that boy was coming, you were what? Yeah, you were stretching that neck. Where's he at? I'm ready. 
Had that next... That's what, that's what this word says. So the Christian is preparing to do what? To welcome Jesus. His focus is not on this world, but it's upon the return of Christ and what he's eagerly waiting for Jesus to come. My question for you is, is that the way you think every day? As you're a pastor, I have to confess. I don't do that. That's part of my failure to strive for perfection. But God in His grace thumps me on the head some days and says, Gary, press on. Jesus is coming. Be preparing for Him. Look at verse 21. It says, We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then He says, What's He going to do? He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Some of you right now are to be going, Yeehaw! By the power... I like that, By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What does this mean? What in the world is he talking about? It means that the believer's salvation one day will be complete. Listen, one day, every one of you sitting here right now are thinking about all that's wrong with you. Right? Some of us more than others. That's just the way life is. But one day, you're going to be like Jesus. How do we know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 52. We believers shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. There's coming a day when all of us, Jesus will come for us, and at the moment He comes, we're all going to be changed. To be like Him. I don't know about you. Well, I like that. I'm 52 years old. And I know I don't have the pains of some of you. But there's some days when I get up I'm thinking, Goodness, where did that come from? I, I didn't have that yesterday. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared yet. That's what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. These humble, lowly bodies, bodies weakened by sin and disease, bodies that have been subjected to futility, bodies that have been subjected to the shame of death as a result of the fall, those bodies one day will be transformed when Jesus comes for His church. I don't know about you, but that's worth living for, is it not? Notice the phrase... Transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. Some of you have translations that have the word change or fashion there. The word uh, transform is a word that expresses the idea of change to the outside. The change will occur to our bodies when Jesus comes. The word transform means this. The permanent, constant, unchanging being of a person. Let me say that again. The permanent... Constant and unchanging being of a person. Here's what that means. Our bodies will be changed and will be conformed to be just like the body of Jesus. Imagine this. To have a body that's permanent, it's constant, and it never changes. That sounds good, doesn't it? A body that will never, ever change. It will stay the same. Our bodies will be changed and conformed to be just like Christ. One day we will be like Jesus. From beginning to end, salvation is a, 
is a process of transforming the Christian to be like who? To be like Jesus. You remember what Paul says? I'm not reaching perfection here. I won't, but what am I doing? I'm pressing on toward the goal because one day that prize will be mine. And notice in verse 21 how this happens. It says, By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus will come from heaven, not only as Savior, but He will come as what? Lord. Creator, ruler of this whole world. And He will exercise His authority over this whole creation one day. There will come a day when universally Jesus will display His authority over this world. He will change His whole creation. Not just you and I, but He will change His whole creation. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where He will dwell with us. Look at verse... Excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, in light of all He said, notice what He says next. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word therefore tells us that what Paul is about to say builds on everything he said in chapter, uh, verse 12 through verse 21. In those verses, Paul described what? You and I pursuing what? Christ-likeness. Which is both the goal in this life and the prize that we're pressing on toward at the end. Paul starts here by using the word brothers again. He's expressing a deep love and concern for the Philippian believers. But notice what he says next. Whom I love and whom I long for. There's this idea of a strong bond and fellowship between believers. It's a love and a fellowship that grows out of something, and it grows out of the gospel. Next, he refers to the Philippian believers as what? His joy and his crown. Paul says the people of God were his joy. Can I tell you as your pastor this morning? You're my joy. You might say, well, you've only been here five months. That, that doesn't matter. What binds you and I together is not the fact that I've only been here five months. What binds us together is what? The gospel. You're my joy. Paul says also that they're his crown. The word crown refers to a reward, a trophy, a reward that God gives. The believers were Paul's crown, his reward, his trophy from God. Paul says, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Notice the last exhortation he gives them. He says, stand firm where? In the Lord. Paul has warned the Philippians about what? Bad examples. Don't follow these people. He says, watch out for those whose God is their own self-indulgence, those who set their minds on this world. He says, don't be deceived by them. Instead, he tells the Philippians and he tells us today, imitate those who make much of Jesus, who make much of the cross. And you're constantly focused on Jesus and His return. Here's what we do. We develop a homesickness that this world is what? It's not our home. And you live like this world is not your home. And you stand fast for how long? Until Jesus comes. That's what He says. You strap yourselves to the grace of God and you say, Jesus, do this for me. Shut my ears, shut my eyes, shut my heart to the things of this world. Shut me off, Jesus, from bagging this world. And I'll tell you this morning, I stood outside and I had to pray this prayer. I said, God, help me not to treasure this world. Help me to 
live here and be as I should be, but this world is not my home. Help me not to grip to this life, but to look for your return. Because this world is not my home. You know, as I thought about this week, this sounds like a lot like the Garden of Eden. You familiar with that story? The serpent comes to the woman and says what? This piece of fruit will do what? It will make you happy. God can't do that, but this will do that for you. It's the same concept here. Self-indulgence and setting your mind on this world does the same thing. This world tells the Christian, God won't make you happy, but this world will. Oh, we'll make you happy. And what happens? What happens? Does it make you happy? Every day we live brings us nothing more but more misery, more heartache, and more things to deal with in the following world. It causes your heart to grow dead and to have a joy that will never last. Let's finish this part up here with some application. Two folks here, two sets of people I want to talk to and apply this today. Christian, are you living your life? Are you preparing here for heaven? That's a simple question to ask, is it not? Are you living for the things that will last? Are you fixing your eyes on the eternal? Are you fixing your hope and your eyes on short-term satisfaction of this life? Are you focused on the promise that Jesus will return? Are you lowering your eyes to the appetite of this world? Are you tied to this world, so tied to this world, that you hope that Jesus waits a long time before He comes? I said that earlier, did I not? I think we need to check our thoughts. We want Jesus to come, but we just don't want Him to come today. Let me tell you something. Your best day here that you could ever have will never compare to the new heavens and the new earth. Whatever you can imagine as a believer being the best thing here will pale in comparison to the new heavens and the new earth. Let me speak to those of you here today who who are lost, those who don't know Christ as Savior. The last thing you should be looking for is for Jesus to come. Because if you haven't repented of your sin against God and put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then Jesus returning is not good for you. Because you know who Jesus is coming for? He's coming for those who belong to Him. But lost person, that can all change here today. My heart for you today is that you would turn from your sin and you would trust in Jesus to save you today. And then you can begin looking and waiting for Jesus. Let's pray.